It's our second week in the book of Daniel as we turn to chapter 2. And as we do so, let me lead us in prayer. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you do speak to us by your Holy Spirit through your word. And we thank you that we have this insight today of exactly how you are ruling your universe. And we pray that it might give us comfort and it might help us to understand what's happening so that we would listen to you and trust you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you noticed how much we talk about the sovereignty of God? Or how God is sovereign? There are quite a few words in-house in our church circles where we will use those words with special meanings. And I think the sovereignty of God is one of those things. And when I use that expression, what's the first thing that jumps into your head? The sovereignty of God. What jumps into your head? It may well be uh, what we said earlier on in a statement of faith. Nothing takes God by surprise. No, oh, ooh, ooh. He is sovereign. He's in control. Maybe that's it. And I think most of the time when we talk about God being sovereign, that's what we're talking about, that he's in control. And that's certainly true. But there's something more to sovereignty than just being in control. There's all that stuff to do with being the head of a state or being the supreme ruler. That idea of being sovereign. It's what kings and queens and presidents are. And so when we're talking about the sovereignty of God, we're certainly talking about how he is king, how he rules as king over the universe, which means, of course, he's in control, but it provides an important link to the idea of the kingdom of God. Sovereignty of God, kingdom of God, they're sort of hand in glove, really. As we look at, Nebuchadnezzar, as we look at the book of Daniel, we, we will see all sorts of things that that challenge our understanding of the sovereignty of God. One of them we see is what happens with the atrocities of King Nebuchadnezzar towards God's people. He's basically gone into Jerusalem and done more than Putin has done to Ukraine. It's probably what Putin would want to do to Ukraine. And it's tragic to watch. And it's hard because this bad guy is not only winning against God's people, God's using him to punish God's people, which is hard to get our heads around. We saw last week in the book of Jeremiah, God described what he's doing. He said, actually, King Nebuchadnezzar is my deputy. He's my deputy. And all that we see is going on as punishment for God's disobedient people. But even though it looked like the God of the Jews was as wounded as his people, he's still fully in control of everything. God is still sovereign even when evil happens. And that's because the God of Judah is the king of the universe. And we'll see that really clearly, I think, in this chapter in the book of Daniel, chapter 2. And it begins with some bad dreams. Uh, one night during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had such disturbing dreams that he couldn't sleep. King Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful king in the world. Whatever he commands will happen. He's got almost absolute power. But he can't control his dreams, can he? Nightmares can be horrible things, can't they? They just feel so real and they can stir up all these kinds of painful emotions. 
You know, sometimes you'll, you'll wake up in the, in, the, in the morning and you've had this horrible nightmare and it is just like it really, really happened. In fact, there's even been times when Mandy said to me, oh, I'm so cross at you. Well, what did I do? Well, in my nightmare, you were horrible. I went, it was... <laughs> But Nebuchadnezzar is having one of those, but it's a really, really bad one. And he is in control of all these things, but he just can't get over that. And it seemed that whenever he tried to rest, this horrible dream came back. The king cannot control his dreams. And so verse 2, he called in his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers and astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. And as they stood before the king... He said, I have had a dream that deeply troubles me and I must know what it means. And the king has got all these experts and they're skilled at interpreting dreams and other stuff. Uh, They can interpret dreams, they can interpret the patterns of stars in the sky. All sorts of stuff are able to be linked to a particular meaning. They've got books that are full of these meanings that they sit down and say, oh, you know, yep, it's that one, this is what it means. So it should all be very nice and simple. The astrologers, verse 4, say to the king in Aramaic, Long live the king, tell us the dream, and we'll tell you what it means, and we can all go home and it'll be fine. I added that last little bit in, but that's the kind of vibe, right? But there's a big twist. Verse 5, the king said to the astrologers, "Uh Uh-uh, I am serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. But if you tell me what I dream and what the dream means, I will give you many wonderful gifts and honours. Just tell me the dream of what it means. And normally, when you have your bad dream, you, you, you turn up and you tell them what the dream is and they answer it, all that kind of stuff. But the king wants to know the dream first. He commands the wise men to tell him his dream. And to help motivate them, he makes them an offer they can't refuse. They get a big stick... And I think a big carrot as well. They're either going to die a horrible death or experience untold riches. Uh, the, The choice should be pretty clear to them. Tell the guy the dream. But there's a problem. Verse 7, they said again, Please, your majesty, tell us the dream and we'll we'll tell you what it means. Why would they just not tell him the dream? Is it maybe the cynical inside of me thinking... They've actually got no idea. They're just fudging the whole thing, perhaps. Maybe. Whatever it is, the king's not going to put up with it. And so he says in verse 8, I know what you're doing. You're stalling for time because you know I'm serious when I say that if you don't tell me the dream, you are doomed. So you have conspired to tell me lies, hoping I'll change my mind. But tell me the dream and then I'll know that you can tell me what it means. Uh, He's really, they're basically snookered, aren't they? And so the king commands them to do this. Uh, The king didn't get to this position by being gullible. And he wants them, if they're really connected to the spiritual world, it's like, well, ask the spiritual world to tell you the dream. And if not, how do I know that you're not just lying to me? The astrologers push back, verse 10. They say, no one on earth can tell the king his dream 
And no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter or astrologer. Well, the spiritual experts tell the king that he's being unfair. Well, that's just not nice. You've hurt our feelings, king. Bad, bad plan. I don't think he's up for that kind of thing. He basically says that it is impossible. Verse 11, the king's demand is impossible. No one except the gods can tell you your dream and they don't live here amongst people. In other words, they say that the king's demand is impossible for humans. Which I reckon is a bit of an own goal, wouldn't you say? If the gods, the spiritual world, are the ones who can actually provide the information that the king needs about what the dream is telling him, then they're saying, actually, we've got no connection to any of the gods and stuff like that. Nobody does, and no other king's asked it, so come on, be reasonable, mate. These so-called magicians and astrologers and wise men, they're, they're clueless. Just like reading tea leaves. They're kind of like, I don't know, or, or looking at a pattern in the clouds. You know, oh, I don't know, what does that look like to you? This is, they get paid for this? Well, here's the reaction. Verse 12, the king was furious when he heard this. And he ordered that all the wise men of Babylon be executed. Why was he so grumpy? It could be that he's been having bad sleeps. That's true. That's what sleep deprivation will do. But whatever it is, he orders that all wise men be executed. Okay, well, that's fine. We move on with the story. Except verse 13, because of the king's decree, men were sent to find and kill Daniel and his friends. It looks like the book of Daniel might be really quite short like Daniel's life, because he and his mates are in the firing line, literally. They are about to be killed because they're in the wise men's guild. Now, the true God is the one who rules, really, but how is he going to get Daniel and his mates out of this pickle? Well, verse 14, when Arioch, who's the commander of the king's guard, he came to kill them. Yeah, G'day, how you doing? I've just got to carry out something for the... Yeah, rightio. Daniel handled the situation with wisdom and discretion. This alone is impressive. The executioner comes knocking at the door and Daniel, in this special divine way, is able to be sensible and calm. And he says, verse 15, why has the king issued such a harsh decree? I mean, for me, I'd be like running straight out the back door. Why has the king issued such a harsh decree? So Ariel told him all that had happened. And so Daniel went at once to see the king and requested more time to tell the king what the dream meant. This is pretty unusual that this would happen because if I was Arioch, I'd be thinking, the, the king, he's big grumpy, hasn't had his wheat picks. He's not going to be up for some one of these Jewish guys popping and knocking on the door saying, Woo, can I have a bit more time? Let me have a go. Really? And I, Antioch, will probably get it in the neck as well. But still, this happens. It's a risky strategy by Arioch. But we can see here that God is setting things up for something special. Because the king granted Daniel's request. Could it have been that when he saw Daniel turn up, he said, ah, you're the guy who is ten times wiser than all the other wise people. And you reckon you might be able to have a crack at this. All right, give it a go. I'll give you a bit more breathing space. 
And so verse 17, Daniel went home and told his friends Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah what had happened. He urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret so that they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. Everything depends on the success of their prayers. They know that what they need to do at that point is not run away. It's not to have a big sort of brainstorming kind of... They just need to get on their knees and they need to pray. And what do they ask for? They cried out to God for mercy. Daniel and his friends cried to God for mercy. I reckon if there was an angel up in heaven who was keeping stats on prayers and saying, okay, uh, what are the circumstances under which this prayer is coming? Oh, that one, okay, fine. You'd have to think that when they crunch all the numbers and they produce the pie charts and things like that, that there'd be a lot of prayers that came up when people were in trouble. This is one of those specific situations. A good mate of mine, Tim Booker, was an army chaplain for a few years and he said that when you're in a plane full of paratroopers about to be deployed at low altitude in a moonless night, there are no atheists on that plane. Padre, will you pray for us? Obviously, Daniel's not an atheist. But he's praying. And he's praying because the true God of heaven is the one who can give him the dream. And so, verse 19, that night the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision... And then Daniel praised the God of heaven. They prayed and God answered. And he answered in a spectacular, supernatural way. How does Daniel respond to that? Well, he stops and he praises God. Because of the revelation, he praises God. And he's got from here, from verse 20, a really lovely little psalm of praise to God. It, I think, affirms what we do in our church and the way that we select songs that, that really say stuff of substance. We say, God, you are great because of these reasons, what you've done and what you've promised and what you've, you've done for us. We, you are great. And we see it here, verse 20. He said, praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. He starts by praising God's name, his, his very being, his very person, his very identity, everything he stands for. And that's because of what, he's, what he has. What does he have there? All wisdom and power. This is what it looks like in reality. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and he sets up other kings. See, Daniel knows who rules, really. He knows that the true God of heaven is in control of world events. He's fully in control of HR for the entire universe. He's active. He's not passive. He's not influencing. He is controlling. God is not influencing. He's controlling. He's pushing the buttons. He's pulling the levers. He's steering the ship. And not only does he control things, verse 21b, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. God's the one who gives the wisdom and the knowledge to these so-called wise men. Which, ironically, those wise men have not really acknowledged, other than to say that they don't think that the gods walk among them. 
we need to realise that God brings wisdom and knowledge and all sorts of good things to people who don't even believe in his existence. It's interesting, isn't it? It's what theologians call the doctrine of common grace, that the Lord gives benefits of his creation to all humans, causing the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. And, and that is true also of wisdom and knowledge. And he continues, verse 22. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness, though he is surrounded by light. The Lord reveals everything because he knows everything, including the hidden in darkness dream that he's now been able to reveal. And so Daniel continues in his praise, verse 23, I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors, for you have given me wisdom and strength. You've told me what we asked of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. <laughs> he calls him the God of the ancestors. He's not a fly-by-night just popped into the history guy. He's, the Lord has been around there, God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon, the lot. And he's now the God of Daniel, of course. And it's an awesome word of praise. It's focused on who God is and what he's done. And that is at the heart of their praise. The praise is about who God is and what he's done. And, and that is what we try and have in our songs as we gather here. We talk about who God is and what he's done. And as we sing this together with gusto, then what we do is as one voice, we praise our God by, by talking to each other about the good things that God has done and addressing him in thanks. Well, having said this, the king returns to the king's command of verse 24 and he says to him, don't kill the wise men. Take me to the king and I will tell him the meaning of his dream. Ariel quickly took Daniel to the king and said, I have found one of the captives from Judah who will tell the king the meaning of the dream. It's all good news. But what's the king going to do? Well, the king said to Daniel, verse 26, also known as Belteshazzar, is this true? Can you tell me what my dream was and what it means? The, the king asks Daniel to share the information with him about the dream. And as we hear the way that the king speaks in verse 26, you kind of wonder whether or not the king actually doesn't know the dream at all. That his big problem is he keeps waking up in the morning in a sweat with his heart going like this, thinking, I've had this dream again, I know it, but I just don't know what it is. And this poor guy is, is in, he's being tortured. And Daniel says, I know what your dream is. So please tell me, please. And so Daniel says, King, there are no wise men, enchanters, magicians or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret. But... <laughs> There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay on your bed. I think it's a lovely model of Christian humility. It's always good for us to give God the glory, isn't it? Someone might come up to you and say, "Oh, you are such a kind person. I reckon that's always a good opportunity to say, oh, look, thank you, but you know, it all comes from God. You know, there are little times like that when we can weave it into our everyday conversation. And it's not just a token thing, it's actually the truth. That if 
People keep telling you how good you are and you realise it's actually, oh, it's just the fruit of the Spirit. You, well, point to the Spirit. Point to the Word of God, that how he has worked in you to lead you to do that. I mean, it's like when people say nice things about our church and, and me and stuff like that. I say, well, look, thanks for kind words, but it all goes to God. It's the glory to God. It's just a whole lot of stuff happening and he's the man. He's the one who's done it all. He's, in, he's sovereign. He's in control. Anyway, having given the credit to the God of heaven... Daniel now announces to the king that he has the key to unlock his nightmares. And it goes like this. While your majesty was sleeping, verse 29, you dreamed about coming events. He who reveals secrets has shown you what is going to happen. And it is not because I'm wiser than anyone else that I know the secret of your dream, but it's because God wants you to know, to understand what was in your heart. Again, the glory goes to God. God is the one who's behind this supernatural, amazing event, just like the words of the wise men said. There's no one who can do it except the gods. Oh, here it comes. And Daniel also identifies that the Lord God, the one who rules really, wants to communicate with this king. God wants to talk to this guy, even though he doesn't necessarily know God at all. And so he says... In your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge, shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron. And its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. It's a lot of detail, isn't it? It's basically, as you can tell, it's a huge statue. Strong, strong head of gold. And as it goes down lower and lower and lower, it gets weaker and weaker and more fragile. But then verse 34, as you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. It struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver and gold. And then the wind blew them away without a trace, like chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. This is all happening from God, not by humans. This rock cut by supernatural means smashes everything to bits. And just doesn't smash it. It, it turns it into powder so light that the wind can blow it away <laughs> what could it mean well Daniel's going to give him the meaning as well verse 20 36 he says that was the dream now we will tell the king what it means your majesty you are the greatest of kings the god of heaven has given you sovereignty power strength and honor He's made you the ruler over all the inhabitant world and has put even the wild animals and birds under your control. You are the head of gold. I've got to say, I reckon Daniel is speaking quite positively of the king, isn't he? This is the same king, of course, who smashed to pieces all of the people and the places of the promised land. And yet God has put him there and he is the gold head. God's the one who's given him his kingship. God gave Nebuchadnezzar his kingship. 
And in fact, the way that he talks about Nebuchadnezzar, it's almost like he's repeating the words that God said to Adam when he gave him authority over all creatures at the start of the Bible in the first chapter. Feels almost like that idea of being there by God to rule. And that makes him the head of gold. But after this kingdom, things will start to deteriorate. Verse 39, after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom inferior to yours will rise to take your place. After that kingdom has fallen, yet a third kingdom, represented by bronze, will rise to rule the world. And following that kingdom, there will be a fourth one as strong as iron. That kingdom will smash and crush all previous empires, just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. The feet and toes you saw were a combination of iron and baked clay, showing that this kingdom will be divided. Like iron mixed with clay, it will have some of the strength of iron. But this mixture of, uh, but, but while some parts of it will be as strong as iron, other parts will be as weak as clay. This mixture of iron and clay also shows that these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage. But they will not hold together just as iron and clay do not mix. It's a long and fascinating explanation of the history that lies ahead for the kingdoms of the world. They'll go from great to good to not so good to really not very good at all. This is what history looks like as we look back. But, but for Daniel, it was him looking forward. And it was God revealing it to the king. And while this is all happening... The true king is ruling. Verse 44, During the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness and it will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands, that crushed to pieces the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver and gold. The great God was showing the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true and its meaning is certain. What's clear is God is establishing an alternative kingdom. And it makes even the great rule of Nebuchadnezzar look tiny in comparison. And yet as the king of Babylonia is succeeded by another and another and another, we can easily take our eyes off what is truly happening. Because the Lord God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, David and descendants and so on, he is ruling a kingdom that is greater than any king, whether they're past or whether they're present or whether they're future. And the kingdom of God will crush all those kingdoms into powder, eventually. We can't see it fully now. But it's a little bit like the rumble of thunder over the horizon. And when it seems that the rulers of the world have beaten the God of heaven, take heart. Because even as Daniel and his friends were indoctrinated by the Babylonian way with those vivid memories of the destruction of Jerusalem, they never forgot who ruled, really. But how's the king going to respond to this bold declaration of God's sovereignty? How's he going to cope with the idea that Daniel's saying, God's going to smash you into smithereens. Will he strike back at Daniel? Will he shoot the messenger? Or well, verse 46. King Nebuchadnezzar threw himself 
down before Daniel and worshipped him. And he commanded all his people to offer sacrifices and burn sweet incense before him. This is the greatest king on earth and he's bowing down to one of his wise men and a Jewish one at that. Right here, the king of Babylon worships Daniel and he tells everyone to join him in worshipping him. And hear how the king of Babylon speaks to the God of Daniel and the Jews. He says, truly your God is the greatest of gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this secret. Now the king has heard his nightmare and he has heard what it means. And it's like a whole weight has been taken off his shoulders. And it's all because of the clarity of the sovereignty of the true and living God, the God of heaven, the God of Daniel. As I was reading this, it reminded me, uh, what we're about to read, of, of a bit like what happened in the book of Genesis related to Joseph. Have a look and see if you see what I'm talking about. Because next, the king appointed Daniel to a high position, verse 48, and gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon as well as chief over all his wise men. And at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego to be in charge of all the affairs of the province of Babylon while Daniel remained in the king's court. Who rules, really? It's the God of Daniel. And any earthly king is under the rule of the true and living God whether they like it or not, whether they acknowledge it or not. Which means that whether it's the king of Babylon or the president of Russia or the queen of England, all rulers are nothing more than God's deputies. And nothing they do will happen unless the Lord wants it to. And this should bring us great comfort and assurance. God's sovereignty brings comfort and assurance. Because we know that the one we pray to is the one who rules, really. And even when it seems that we are in chaos, the Lord's in control. Which will lead us to see the world very differently to the way that the world wants to be seen. Every leader wants to push forward their chest and say, What I decide is what will happen. I am the king. I am the president. I am the queen. I am the prime minister. I am the leader. But those who rule in this way are deluded. Their rule will be shattered into pieces and ground into powder. And in its place will be the rock rock of ages. Let's sing.